This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Coming up, Subversity with Dan Zhang. Today we're going to be interviewing a, a special guest, independent filmmaker, Quentin Lee. So stay tuned. This is Quentin, Quentin Lee, a director of a new film called... Um, uh, it's called The People I've Slept With. I it's thought it was I've the people you slept with. But not, I, not, it's not a movie, it's not a documentary, it's a comedy. <laughs> it's a hilarious comedy, actually. Um, and it, it's been going the rounds of film festival where you've uh, gotten quite some attention. Yes, and then we're opening actually this coming Friday, August 27th at the Lemley Sunset Five in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know if it's coming or when it's coming to Orange County? Um... I don't know, because we haven't really booked Orange, Orange County yet. But, okay. um, so that's sort of where we're at. Um, but it's also going to be, um, it's going to be coming out on Logo, um, which is the MTV channel, sometime in late fall. And then we're just actually finishing up a, um, a deal with a, a video, uh, with a distributor. With a distributor. Yeah. So, but, but actually, I'm... Because I'm the filmmaker, I'm personally actually theatrically distributing the movie on my own because cause I just feel like the logo day is getting closer and closer, and we I feel like you you know we really wouldn't have a chance of having a theatrical exposure if I don't do it myself. So I'm actually doing the whole theatrical release myself. And you, we, it, yeah, um, is that difficult to do it yourself? It is very very difficult. First of all, it's very difficult to even get anyone to play your movies in a theater. Yeah. Um, so. Anyways, um, anyway, let's talk about the movie first. Sure. Uh, why, uh, why this story? Uh, you've been doing a lot of kind of very, um, very uh, frontier breaking, I guess, <laughs> frontier piercing uh, movies in the past, and this one is uh, also. It um, actually shows a woman uh, who's very sexually active, and an Asian woman at that. And so it counters the stereotype of Asian women as docile and uh, kind of um, Madame Butterfly even, or uh, just serving the man. Um, why did you write the? Or did you write this story? Well, what happened was that I was pretty good friends. I mean, I'm good friends with Karen Anna Chung, the uh, actress, and maybe a, almost around 2006, like almost four years ago, we were hanging out, and we really wanted to do a project together. And I've always, you know, I've always been interested in women's stories because I think that there's so much parallel between, you know, a female perspective in a society with a gay male's perspective. And sure. that's sort of the inspiration of it. And, I, I, you know, I actually am really attracted and drawn to, like, strong female characters. And um, that's something that I've always wanted to do. And actually I did a little bit of that in my first feature, The Shopping for Fangs, which I co-directed with Justin Lin. And his part was about this guy who's turning to werewolf, and then my part is more about like you know this this woman who has like you know who has a double personality, and one is really weak, and the the other one is really kind of like you know ultra masculine and strong. So I'm basically picking up that theme, that strand of um, ideas that I started, you know, in I got 1999 and 1997. <laughs> so you picked you picked uh, her for this role. Already, yeah, yeah. Kind of. We we developed the project together. Oh wow! Yeah, and so, um, and then it? we we were just talking about, but you know, but particularly with the people I've slept with, you know, we're thinking like, well, we want to do a comedy because if you think about it, there are not really really 
there are no fun Asian American movies. Like we want to do like a, a date movie, a date movie for Asian Americans. That's also funny, and that's also you know feminist, and that's also gay positive. So that's very important for us to do. And that's sort of like like how we came out with the idea about this girl. And she's been partying with a gay best friend, and somehow she got pregnant, not knowing, you know, how she got pregnant. So it's about her journey to find out the identity of the father. So you wanted to do a positive, uh, kind of uh, liberated film for Asian American date about Asian American dating. Yes, and also, also, and also with like you know a very gay positive um, perspective. Um, because we're, when we're making a movie, you know, we're just right around you know where Prop Eight was about to happen. So. We really want to do a movie to um, to kind of like you know fight Prop Eight, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously, Prop Eight passed after the movie was made, and but we still have you know a gay marriage in the movie because because at some point the movie is about you know both the gay best friend and and Karen, the gay best friend played by Wilson Cruz, and then Karen and and Karen, Karen's character they're both trying to get married to this to to the right guy. Except that they don't have the right guy yet. Yeah, that's it's a kind of, of, of it. Yeah. I think this hunt for the right person is uh, is pretty hilarious. Um, and um, did you did you uh, know which one was going to be the right person uh, when you were casting these people? Um, you mean in terms of like just the um, the the ensemble of like care, uh, yeah. of Angela's lovers? The um, end result, yeah. Did you? We we have an open mind actually because we know that definitely there's going to be one romantic lead um, who is played by Archie Kao uh, from CSI and so we think well we we kind of need that in the movie um, but the movie is also about her independence and it's about her you know coming to terms with who she is yeah, yeah. Um, so and then the other guys you know just sort of like fall into place you know because um, uh, uh, we are, we auditioned like a lot of people for um, and then we got like. You know, the we got like nice, boring guy played by Randall Park, and he's hilarious, and he's actually a friend of friend, and um, he was he came highly recommended, and and he just worked out perfectly. Did you, um, did you and, try to fit the other guys into different roles? Well, I wouldn't say that we try to fit them into different roles, but certainly the roles are there were there, and they they sort of grew into the role. Particularly, I think like for Randall Randall Park's character, nice but boring guy. Because it's because he he really brought like a very um, I would say a humanizing a very kind of like adore a, like affectionate and sweet perspective a sweet side to that character which um, which I, I guess wasn't really written you know so yeah, actually yeah. his character is becoming one of like people's favorites. So th- did they improvise when they were reading the script or? Yes, definitely. Oh. Yeah, because I think that you know there was. There's definitely like a, there's a script, and you know we stuck to the script. But also, we thought I sometimes do a comedy. A lot of a lot of times, I think that it's so, it would be so much more fun and interesting to have like the, the actors improv. So, so Karen and yeah, a lot of the just the people just improv a lot, you know. And we just kind of would, would leave the camera on and try to capture some of the so like you know the fun kind of improvisation. And we kept a lot of that in the final cut. Uh, we're, we're talking with Quinton Lee, an uh, independent filmmaker, whose new film is The People I Step, I've Slept With. And uh, that's uh, opening at the Lemley in Los Angeles, Sunset 5, on, um, September, on August sorry, 27. 
uh, and w- later hopefully we'll we'll be able to see it out here also. Um, the, uh, the Wilson Cruz character, uh, uh, the Wilson Cruz. Uh, how did you know him before this? Uh, no, well, I, I I met Wilson at a party because um, a mutual friend, uh, Eric Mappa, was uh, having a performance, and then I met Wilson at the after party after an introduction from a mutual friend, and so I mentioned, you know, basically told him about the project, and then sent him the script, and he really liked it, and he basically came on board um, quite early on. Yeah, yeah, I think he it's a wonderful role he plays, and I like the fact that he wasn't... Uh, you know, sure about, you know, about the relationship at the beginning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, it's it just shows some of the reality that people go through, I think, in these uh, situations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how about the, this whole idea of a comedy? You, you've done some really serious stuff before, or some, <coughs> I think. <laughs> and uh, why why comedy? Well, you know, the form of the comedy wasn't really planned, per se. And when we were writing the movie, we were thinking that, well, what would be really fun to watch, you know? So we had this, basically, this storyline with this, you know, interesting character and all the fun adventures that she was going through. Um, But then in the very beginning, um, the earlier drafts of the script were a lot more melodramatic. Like, towards, I think, two-thirds down the, I mean, maybe the the last, I would say the half the script, the last half of the movie was pretty sappy and people were, and she was crying throughout the movie. And then as we were developing it, we realized that, you know what, it sort of didn't fit the tone of it, you know, and it should be more funny. So we sort of like went a different direction mm-hmm. with it. So I would say the comedy sort of came from very, just basically came from organically developing, de- developing the script and the story. And we didn't really, we, we didn't set out to write a comedy. We were open with the idea of just, you know, coming of age with this girl and, and her journey. But somehow the comedic form basically organically grew into the story because there were just so many crazy dating experiences that we wanted to write about. Um, so at some point it's basically uh, about sustaining that comedy uh, throughout the movie, um, but also, um, also kind of like, you know, putting in a more kind of like, you know, self-reflective, self-reflective, self-reflective coming-of-age dimension to the movie where she has, you know, basically she sort of has at the end of the movie. And also the raising of a family, I guess, with, with, with Wilson and the other partner. Yeah, and a lot of, so much of the movie about, is about, like, forming alternative family. It's like, you know, what, what, what does it mean if you are single you know, a single lady and who wants to have a child um, because that's something that is on both my mind and, and Karen's mind mm. when we're developing the project and obviously on, on you know, our writers and the producer's mind because um, Koji's married and, and Stan, my producer, is married and has two kids. Mm. So we have like a really... So the, the script sort of came about from like, you know, basically very different perspectives. Um, yeah, because people think, seem to think that, you know, with Prop 8, that uh, it's this trad- it's, you know, it's kind of uh, mimicking heterosexual families. But actually, uh, there's a lot of alternative families out there that don't fit the, you know, the typical model. Uh, yeah, I, I think with Prop 8, it's just really about, for us, I think that, you know, because I'm, I'm also Canadian, so, you know, we have... Oh, you're Canadian, we have, 
Yeah, we have yeah. gay. We had we had gay marriage since two thousand and three. Yeah, yeah. And actually, on my last speech at Ethan Mao, that I was actually traveling. I was traveling to Taiwan, and then I think Canada Council for the Arts um, gave me money for that trip. Wow. And then the Canadian government actually um, uh, did a reception for us, and then and then sort of like the Canadian government in, in Taiwan and Taipei then sort of like wanted me to participate in this Canada Day thing to basically <laughs> tell people yeah. that, you know, Canada just like, you know, Canada just approved um, gay marriage, you know, federally. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so I came from that background and realized that, you know, it's even though, you know, you don't, you may, I may not get married or you may not get, get married or, you know, some gay people would not get married, but it is important to have that right, having that right. To marriage, um, it's basically you know an equality that we're fighting for. Did you um, did you start off uh, after you came from Asia in Canada? Then yes, I came from. I grew up in Hong Kong, hence my accent. And if I went to high school in Canada, and then we basically our family immigrated there, and then I came to the states for college and pretty much stayed. So do you identify as a Canadian now, or Canadian American, or what? what? What, what, how about this ethnicity and identity thing? Ethnicity identity is always in crisis. In crisis. <laughs> that's me, but that's also my inspiration because... Um, so I was wrong in calling I'm you... I'm definitely an immigrant. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt yeah. about it. You know, I'm definitely an immigrant, so... I think I was wrong in calling you Asian-American then, huh? I am Asian-American. <laughs> I'm also Asian-American. <laughs> I'm also Asian. <laughs> this is a uh, tension between nationality and... Uh, and ethnicity, I guess. I would. I guess there's some. Ten, there's not necessarily tension. Not necessarily tension. Yeah, because most people like, don't care about nationality. I guess, like, if you were born and you know raised here, you don't think that much about it. And if you like, you, right. know, you were just an immigrant, you don't think that much about it. And if you're a little bit intellectual and you know you studied what I studied, you know we always think about it because it's, it is obviously both. It's it's both like a cultural and political. I mean, it's it's like a cultural and political. Um, um, kind of thing that you think about, you know, culturally, where are you, yeah. and and politically, where are you? And I think less politically, but for me, it's more cultural. If it, um, but I think if you cross borders, then you have to you kind of confronted uh, politically by the nationality issue, because that's how how they treat you when you cross the border. Uh, what your passport is, I guess. Yeah. 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 But the I know that you did a, a reflection on Hong Kong, uh, whether to stay there uh, in your earlier film, a more recent film, I guess, another recent film. Yeah, and, it's, uh, uh, and that one you initially just put on the web, and then now it's available on D- DVD. Yes, it is available on DVD, and then mostly I you know made that I made that documentary between Ethan Mao and and um, the people I slept with because I was going through a phase and wasn't sure I should be in Asia, I should be like in America, I should be in Canada. <laughs> and, um, and just, you know, so it, the movie was sort of like, you know, extremely personal and it was about that. And Yeah, and I think I interviewed you right after that and we talked about it, right? Um, about whether you uh, felt you could be uh, artists uh, more in, in, in Los Angeles rather than in Hong Kong. Yes, that is true because I think that I think that Hong Kong, in many ways, you know, the society, I mean, you know, I think that it's better to be, probably better to be an artist in, in even like, you know, Canada or U.S. than in Hong Kong because I think that 
just culturally, you know, because you're from Hong Kong, you know, culturally they yeah. don't really appreciate. They may not get to appreciate, you know, um, that type of artistic discourse. Oh, then my and when everybody's just trying to make money, and that's all they, I mean, <laughs> I mean, we, we <laughs> all do, we all want to make money, yeah, but if everything yeah. is just trying to make money in one, through one specific way through businesses, you know, so it's very yeah. hard to, to you oh. know, have, to grow, have artists that grow. And also I think the community in Hong Kong is pretty small, it's basically, you know, 7 million people or something. And Hong Kong is no longer Hong Kong anymore because Hong Kong is not China. So, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, there's a, uh you know, some problems coming up, but the uh, one recent one, I was just there actually last month, and one big thing last month was in China they wanted to ban Cantonese TV programming in the run-up to the Asian Games because they wanted to um, make everything Mandarin-speaking. And, of course, there were protests uh, in Hong Kong and in uh, China, in Guangzhou, mm. and over that, and... Uh, and then lately, then the press uh, in China didn't cover the protest, so not sure if it's still going on. Um, but the um, there's this kind of what I call Mandarin imperialism uh, creeping through Hong Kong, where um, the state uh, tries to dictate uh, things going on in in Hong Kong, uh, in sometimes more heavy-handed way, sometimes less. Uh, so there's definitely that uh, that uh, pressure there, I guess, if you're living there. I mean, uh, I think I'm not surprised, but the thing is that I don't know how that could be possible because everybody yeah. speaks Cantonese. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not surprised that this is a step that China would do because, again, like, you know, one of the things that I think my friend talked about in my documentary was that you're just never sure, like, you know, because China, I mean, because China is not democratic, you know, you just never know when they're going to flip the switch on you, um, you know, whether it's something like culturally, like, you know, just like, you know, producing a program, TV program in Cantonese yeah. to, to you know, just larger issues of like, you know, to other issues such as like gay rights and just, you know, you just never know. But do you prefer and to live over there in terms of... Um, you mean in Hong Kong? Having friendships, uh, friends there. Is it easier to find people there to be friends or... Even I wouldn't say friends. that because yeah. I think that a lot of the friends that I I basically came of age intellectually at Berkeley because ah. I came I went to Berkeley at eighteen and then um, basically went to school there and I've, I still have a lot of friends from there but that's the kind of spirit that I sort of like really felt like intellectually and and culturally I really kind of like grew grew and I just remember even in high school um, my teachers were saying that oh, Hong Kong isn't right for you you should just go away. I don't know why they say that. What, what do you say? Oh, I don't know why she said that. You know, they said, oh, you know, you know, Hong Kong wasn't really right for you. And I knew quite early on, around like when I was like 12 or 11, that, you know, my parents said we were going to have to, we were going to have to immigrate anyway. So I guess I never really, I tried not to, I tried not to leave my heart in Hong Kong, even at a very, even at a very young age, which I thought was actually a very sad kind of thing. So, but whether I can go back now and make up a lost time, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, think those, I, those are the issues that I would yeah. think about. But um, but you're happy here now, huh? <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm reasonably happy because you just again, like you go back, you just never know. I mean, you just never know. I mean, like being an artist living in in a possibly in a place where possibly can just flip the switch on you without you knowing why. And, and you know, you've known, you've seen throughout. You know, people, they 
it's in, in China they keep banning movies all the time, you know. Yeah, yeah. Ban this filmmaker and basically you go away for like five years and come back and then you'll be okay. And which is ironic because if you look at the career of Zhang Yimou was that his films, his earlier films were banned all throughout and now he just did the Olympics, you know. I mean, things are definitely changing in China, so I don't know, but I'm not sure how, you know. Again, like the whole journey of my life is that, you know, how to fit in and, and just me as an artist, you know, what I create and I think that what that's what everybody thinks about, you know. And But I definitely, I mean, I definitely, my work definitely reflects, you know, the whole, all these, I would say, tension and conflicts between different, you know, cultural identities and, you know, and I guess my perspective, from my perspective, I see that it's more apparent, you know. I kind of see you as the Longfang Terib of uh, filmmaking, uh, of independent filmmakers, and because uh, your stories tend to poke uh, poke holes at uh, established kind of uh, ways of looking at thing, at things. Like in Ethan Mao, you have a a, 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 a gay son who who comes back to his family and then robs them. And kidnaps them, I guess. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so that's you know that's not something Chinese families would look on, you know, kindly. And uh, so there's these fantasies that um, are probably in many people's minds of um, trying to do something to disrupt the status quo. And uh, but you you give voice to it, I guess. Yeah, because I think I'm interested in those kind of perspectives. But I think that, you know, making a movie or being in the arts is a safe way to explore those kind of desires. You know, you don't go out and actually, you know, kidnap your parents. But I think that in some way, you know, in cinema where you can explore, like, you know, basically, you know, what could have happened or what might have happened. It's, you know, especially from the darker side of life, it's interesting, you know. It's just like I think with the people I've talked with, you know, people complain that, people complain a little bit about, like, oh, wow, why didn't Angela have safe sex? And why did she get pregnant? Because it's like, you know, just, you know, she could have gone STD or something. But the reality is that she only, out of all the people that she slept with, like, you know, quite a number of them, she was only intending to use, she was just wasn't planned, she just forgot to use safe sex, probably in three cases. Oh. And even one guy, it's just because one, it just also happened the condom broke. So she wasn't really that irresponsible. But if you take into, you know, the account of like, you know, if you go out, how much you be drinking, mm. you be partying. So it's not, it's totally like not unlikely that you could have had unsafe sex, you know. Uh, and that's the tragic flaw of the character. I mean, that's basically what sets the movie in motion. And, and, and the, the movie is about her stepping up and coming to terms with, you know, basically, you know, the few, you know, irresponsible cases of sex that she has engaged in. Coming to deal with responsibility. Yeah, yeah. in some uh, way that, you know, yeah. I think. So, so it is a very complicated issue because it isn't like, you know, just a... And, you know, because I grew up with safe sex, so I, I know what goes into, you know, just the the care of this, you know, because I grew up in, you know, basically at, at the tail end of AIDS eight. era, so I know it is how important it is to save sex, but the reality is that a lot of times, you know, there are times that safe sex didn't happen, you know. Yeah, it's so, complicated, yeah. And, uh, and again, like, you know, where, whether you are, like, you know, a woman and it's different, or a guy, or, like, top or bottom, like, there's all these kind of things that mm. how how accidents could have affected you, per se. 
Uh, we're talking with Quentin Lee on Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, the opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Um, how about this whole idea of a woman being very sexually active? Do you think that, um, especially Asian woman, um, how were you trying to um, make some strong statement about that? No, I don't think so, because I think that, because the people I've slept with have been, we have, there are a lot of talks about remaking the movie in, like, other cultures, like, you know, other places like Korea, mm. Hong Kong, even, like, the talks about remaking the movie here, you know, with a bigger cast. So the ethnicity about it is not, like, you know, it's not really, I'm not making necessarily a statement about Asian woman, but I think that it's more like, but more, I think that, her being Asian gives the story an extra layer and complexity um, to the story, you know. Um, and she wasn't just dating white people. No, uh, she was dating basically everybody. She's multicultural. And actually, <laughs> multicultural. <laughs> she is, uh, like, you know, basically I would say what how Wilson Cruz would put it. It's like basically she, she F star CK the rainbow. And that's how we wanted the characters to be because we don't want her just to be dating one kind of, like, you know, Mm. one kind of like you know one kind of guys whether it's white guys or like you know Asian guys whatever you want her to be kind of like an equal opportunity dater and that's kind of cool about the character you know um, and obviously you know as an Asian American male we also realize that there aren't a lot of like I'd say role models or romantic leads out there um, mm -hmm. for Asian Americans to, Asian American males to play and yeah. so so when we're thinking of, like, well, you know, should we make, you know, her, the romantic lead Asian-American? And we thought, well, we definitely should because I think that's important, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so we made him Asian-American, but, mm -hmm. but at that same time, I don't think the Asian-Americanness of the movie takes over. You know, let's say that you strip the movie completely. Like, let's say you strip the movie completely of, like, you know, it being Asian or the characters being Asian. I think the movie would still be funny and original. And that's the kind of movies I want to make. But I think the, in terms of the marketing, I think, do you think it, it's, it, I know it's, it featured, uh, I mean, I saw it at the Asian, Asian Pacific American Film Festival in L.A., and um, I think it's, I mean, it's, it definitely has that market. Well, I think both, definitely. Definitely have an Asian American market. But what, what, what I've, I've been finding out of playing the film festival circuit is that, yeah. um, for example, I'll give you an example. In L.A., we played, we played Outfest Fusion, and then we played, and then after that we played the Asian American Film Festival, and then, and then because we played Outfest Fusion, the Asian Film Festival, the Asian American Film Festival people were saying like, hey, you know what, you know, you have played LA once, you know, you just, you know, we're afraid that you know Asian Americans won't show up for this movie, and which is not true because we, you know, that that screening was packed, and it was packed because, right. you know, we we got help from a lot of different organizations, you know, like Cape, like. Um, um, like Diva, like just off the top of my head, like we had like about four or five community sponsors, and that really, really, really helped um, to bring people out to the screenings. But but then we played Vancouver. You know, at Vancouver we played the Asian Film Festival first, the, the Vancouver Asian Film Festival, and then we mm -hmm. played the we just played the Queer Film Festival, and both screenings were full. Mm. So again, like it's it's interesting that I noticed that there's this level of segmentation of my audience that. That Asian people, Asian Americans, or Asian slash Asian Canadians do not will not come to like a gay film festival, and just like you know, LGBT audience may not come out to an Asian film festival. So, mm. 
so which is good because at the end of the day we can play both festivals and we actually can cultivate different segments of the audience. Um, if that makes any sense. I mean, you're assuming that there aren't any Asians among the LGBT group. There are. <laughs> there were. There were like I would say in Vancouver, particularly in Vancouver, is interesting. Like you know, I thought that oh my god, because again, like the program, I said you already played the Vancouver Asian Film Festival. And Vancouver is a small town. It's like you know six, seven hundred thousand huh. people. So they were afraid that you know the screening is not going to be the screening wasn't going to be full, but it was packed. You know, mm-hmm. it was packed. Mm-hmm. But it's true. It's I would say it's eighty percent LGBT audience, and maybe I would say maybe like. Ten percent Asian, or even five percent Asian. I could actually count. Yeah. I could have counted all the Asian Americans and the Asian Canadians in the audience. There are like maybe ten of them, or ten or twenty of them. I don't know. Has it shown in uh, Hong Kong yet? It sh- it showed in Hong Kong. Yeah, it showed at the Hong Kong Asian Independent Film Festival after after we played the oh, right. yeah. the Golden Horse Film Festival in Taipei, and we went to Hong Kong. And um, so th- um, this was just last month or two months ago, huh? No, that was yeah. like last year. That's last year, like oh, last year, November. Year. Yeah. Oh, oh. Um, but the audience is definitely a little bit different from Asia, just because I think that the movie is very American, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in some way. So some jokes they get because some some jokes it's just they get, and some jokes they didn't get. But as a whole, I think the reaction was really good. That they thought it's a really funny movie. Yeah, yeah, that's great. The uh, did did you you said earlier that you were thinking of uh, releasing it already on. DVD, uh, is that right? It will be released on DVD, but we're just fin- trying to finish up the the whole distribution deal right now. So, uh, you mean the distribution in theaters or in, on in on, cable on, or on DVD and VOD and stuff like that? Oh, but yeah. we're I'm personally distributing the movie myself into theaters because I have that kind of experience. Yeah, um, yeah. And so it's really great, you know, because we opened New York like last week, the weekend before, and right. I was out there for the screening. Um, How does so that work? Was really good. How it went you, really well. Do you have um, a call? No, I meant in terms of getting a theater to play your film. It's very, very difficult. New yeah. York has been, New York was the toughest town ever, but I was very lucky because um, I talked to this booker um, of the Clearville Cinema chain, and he, he liked the movie, and he booked it, you know. So you send them a DVD first, or how do you do Yeah, basically send you know what? I actually didn't. I booked the movie without sending them a screener. Oh, wow. Just from the reputation of the movie because it's been doing very well at the festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So again, like, you know, um, but, you know, sometimes even asking for one screen in the entire New York City was very hard, you know, because a lot of movies don't get, um, just don't get hey, that type yeah. of attention. It's very tough. And But, you know, in L.A., I feel pretty comfortable because I've worked with, you know, i worked with Lamley Theatres since, I don't know, I since my first feature, Shopping for sure. Fangs. Yeah, yeah. So I also self-distributed. Oh, um, yeah. And also right. Ethan Mao plays Fairfax, and so basically, you know, sort of like going back to, you know, kind of like a family and saying, you know, so that's kind of cool. In San Francisco, we're playing San Francisco uh, September 3rd. Um, we're opening September 3rd at the Viz Cinema and also San Jose. Oh, cool. Um, do you think um, the reason you want to hang on to it uh, do your own kind of DIY distribution is because you want uh, more control or more? Uh, no, because I, I originally wasn't thinking of doing it myself. But then at the end, I realized that, you know, we have like a cable day that's coming up from Logo. And if I don't do it myself, you know, nobody's going to do it. So I ended up picking up the, I ended up picking up basically um, the slack, the red, the slack or the rain. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I I saw like you know my colleague my colleagues did it you know like you know Zichen with um, children children of invention oh, and yeah. also um, 
and also um, Dave Barr with White on Rice, which were the two um, kind of like, you know, Asian-American features in the past couple of years. And if, you know, figure they thought I did it, I should, I should just do it anyway because I sort of have the contacts, I know what to do, and so that's sort of how it happened. Is that the trend now? You think more people are going to do that? That's what you've been telling me because, you know, I was talking to a programmer um, from Sundance, and she was basically saying, yeah, like basically everybody's doing DIY right now because um, theatrical is just so – theatrical distribution is always tough. You know, if you don't have the P&A budget to support the distribution, it's, it's always very, very difficult. But so, so much of it is about, like, you know, grassroots and getting people out there and, you know, um, but – you know, if you're a filmmaker, you care about your film, you know, that's the only thing you can do if you don't have, like, you know, if you don't have someone who wants to, to theatrically distribute the movie. I just saw, a friend and I just saw this uh, kind of mainstream film called Hugh Hefner. It's a documentary about his life. Mm-hmm. And it's actually quite a good documentary about his, his uh, support for civil liberties and helping jazz artists uh, perform in a, in a segregated America. And... Uh, you know, but the theater I went to was one of the, um, you know, or, or kind of art, art theaters, uh, but there was like nobody in the audience. It played for less than a week, and maybe there were like two or three people in the audience. Really? Four people. So I was surprised, you know, Playboy, you know, Hugh Hefner, it's a big name, but I, I'm not sure why. Is it because of documentaries? People don't want to go see documentaries uh, about um Well, about I mean... Guy. What I've noticed with this, with the recent, you know, uh, distribution landscape is that the exhibitors really wanted filmmakers to show up for the first couple of nights. And that's, mm-hmm. why, we're do, that's why we're doing, you know, we started in New York. And, and originally, you know, you know, I would say like, you know, 10 years ago, the distribution scene is different. You just basically just send your movie and you open it there. You know, it's completely dependent on reviews. But I think that showing up, you know, as a filmmaker, showing up at the theater, people really like that. You know, the audience like that. And because... Because I was there for opening night, you know, I was able to fill like this one screening with the help with the help of the uh, Columbia Alumni Association, and they basically brought out they basically brought a full house to to the screening, huh. and that was so that was just so helpful. It basically, you know, was so you know really helped the numbers in New York. Um, so basically, now everybody wants the filmmakers and actors to be to be out there, you know, even on opening night doing Q&A, and that's exactly why we're doing in L.A. We'll be doing Q&As the whole weekend oh, wow. <laughs> with different yeah. organizations. A lot more work, and especially I think that it's very stressful, you know, as filmmakers, because I was I, I really like the idea of, um, in A Portrait of a Young Man, James Charles' James novel, a portrait, a portrait of a Young Man as an artist, which he uh-huh. talked about basically once, once you've created an artwork or like a book or something, you can just be pairing. You have to, the artist can be pairing, pairing his or her fingernails as the artwork is just having a life on its own. But now it seems like that you have to basically babysit this this movie that you've made. And, you and I think babysit it, is yeah. a bad way to say just really like, you know, hold the movie's hand and be out there and just really, you know, introduce this movie. So it's just that the distribution landscape has changed, you know. Um, so people like, but it's a good thing because you get to interact with the audience, you know, members, be, you know, which is pretty fun. You know, it's kind of like going to a film festival. Yeah, but it must be expensive. Huh? You have to fly to New York and all this stuff. Yeah, pretty much New York. We have to fly there, so it's hard to get, you know, so I could, I could only just even fly out there, you know. I was just saying how broke I was. I am because 
I would put one leg of the, my New York New York ticket on my on miles, and then I would just pay for one one the other leg. So that's how I got out there, and I crashed with a friend mm. who was very generous, uh, let me stay um, right across from the movie theater. Oh, so um, yeah. basically, I just that's how I would get out there in in LA, you know, in Los Angeles. You know, we're lucky that we're all here, so we'll be able to do like Q and A's and stuff like that. And and I mean, kudos to like Karen, Koji, and and Archie and Stan and, and all the actors who are willing to come and, and do the Q and A's. Yeah. Um, in yeah. San Francisco, you know, we're going up Karen Karen Archie. No, sorry, Karen Koji and I uh, we're going up to San Francisco. So wow. from here. So it'll be a nice road trip. I already told them I couldn't fly you guys up. I have to drive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we can a group of people. Friends. It'll be nice, yeah. <laughs> to go in a group, yeah. 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 But um do you feel like uh, do you want to make other movies uh, that are com- comedic, or have you decided on your next movie? Well, um, I've been developing a, a, a serial killer thriller, so I've been working on that called After Me: The Disaster. I'm working with Koji on a couple of other movies, um, but it seems like you know the genre is not as important to me because it's the, I think the story is important, you know. Mm. The genre, a lot of times, it's like, you know, I obviously love horror films, but I think, again, like, the genre is not really that important. It's more about the stories that attract me to a certain, I'm attracted to certain type of stories, you know. Um, so the, the genre sort of comes from the story. Yeah. If you look at my movies, a lot of my movies actually, I think one of the, a lot of my movies actually sort of, like, you know, play with the genres. It's not really one genre or the other. So, like, Shopping for Fangs, it's sort of like, you know, a little bit like, you know, a psychological thriller, but it's kind of drama. It's kind of, like, a little bit funny. Um, so, again, like, I, I I like to play with different genres, and, 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 and I think the genre comes from more of the story than, the than, you know, than itself. Do you, do you keep in touch with all these um, actors, actresses from the earlier movies? I, I try to, I guess, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I'm not on bad terms with anybody, I hope. <laughs> 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 I saw you in LA with uh, Jason Tobin. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I we were, we were actually working. We were actually working on a project together. Um, I'm producing uh, Stanley Young. I produced this project called uh, Model Minority, and Jason is Jason Tobin is attached to it. And we've been trying to work on a project together too. Oh, cool. Because yeah. you know, I um, is he here now? Or is he? St- it's still in Hong Kong. Um, Jason, I think is in Hong Kong because yeah. here I should probably know about it. <laughs> Uh, I think he's in Hong Kong. Um, yeah, yeah. But again, Jason is interesting because he's he was from Hong Kong and right. Hong Kong, and he's one of these hyphenates. I think he's British Hong Kong, right? Right. His father's uh, British Hong Kong, British and uh, American. Chinese. So, yeah. So I think I think you know I belong to this kind of like these people that go go between like you know different countries and national boundaries, and and that to me is interesting. I just saw a film uh, on my way back on Cathay, and it was uh, Rage of Hong Kong because it it was the first Hong Kong film to win something at the Berlin Film Festival. Did you hear about that film? Which film? Uh, it's called... Uh, it's the Rage little, of Hong Kong? Yeah, it's a Hong Kong film about a boy uh, who's like eight years old, I think, and his brother is this top student, went to my high school, actually, and so they filmed it at my high school in Hong Kong. And uh, I didn't know that until I saw it on the plane. And uh, the parents uh, make shoes, and they live on the street. 
Uh, so the stories about life on the street in the 60s in Hong Kong is like a kind oh. of nostalgic look back. And because it won a prize, the government had to stop uh, demolishing buildings on that street in Sam Shui Po um, after the film uh, got all this success. And they agreed not to tear down any more buildings. So, so the race of Hong Kong, it's, it's, a, it's, a do, it's a docudrama, it's not really a documentary. No, it's a drama. It's a drama, uh, it reflects the actual conditions of Hong Kong. That at the time in the 60s. That actually motivated political changes over there. Yeah, and I saw, uh, it's, it's just set in the 60s, and then I saw at the, at the uh, DVD store, HMV, they actually had a whole uh, display of, of Hong Kong in the 60s. Um, mainstream films, uh, uh, 50s and 60s, uh, Suzy Wong, uh, uh, and uh, other films, other kind of American films about Hong Kong, all, all put on the same case to try to have people look back at the period. And mm-hmm. so I think because of, you know, China has took back Hong Kong, there's a kind of a interest in digging up the past and trying to uncover things that were not, uh, you know, that people have forgotten about, I guess. Uh, yeah, well, I'll be sure to check it out. That sounds yeah, like it's called Echoes of the so- Rainbow. It's called Echoes of the Rainbow, but not Rage of Hong Kong. No, Echoes of the Rainbow. Okay. And it's um, it's very cute, a uh, cute movie. It's kind of a tearjerker, but I liked it because of, you know, it's set in my school. And, <laughs> and, uh, what, what was your school? Huh? What uh, was your school? DBS. Oh, you're at DBS. Okay. Yeah. I was in Paul's co-ed. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's like enemies, I guess. <laughs> but, not uh, really, because I don't know, because my, my uncle actually went to DBS. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but I heard it's a very gay school. <laughs> it's a gay school. Be, I felt yeah. so bad because like, I went to a boys' school. I actually, like, an element... I, I went to a boys' school for one day. I was so happy that my mom just picked me out of it. She said, you're going to a co-educational school. Why was he was I was, worried I was about in, what you I was in St. Paul's Boys when I was, like, you know, oh, grade yeah. one or something. I don't know. And I, was, I really had, like, the best two, three days. Uh, I think, like, two, three huh. days in that school. And then cause yeah. she wanted me to go to this better school and somehow... Oh, that's interesting. I got in, and then she just pulled me out from this thing, Paul's boys, that I actually, you know, I, I'm still angry at her because <laughs> I am, because I could have gone to this really, and also, also that was this one school that I actually made it in myself, you know, because I, I, you know, because, you know, even in, in elementary school, you have to go, you have to get tested, right? What do you mean made it by yourself? Made I, thought, I remember I got, I tested, I got into this school by myself. Oh. And then, but my mom wanted me to go to a better school, so she was, like, talking to her friends, trying to pull strings, and she got me into St. Paul's Coet. I'm admitting that I actually didn't get tested in, in like, grade one. Connections, uh, Wow. Yeah, been, so I, uh, I, I felt like, you know, she uh, should have just really let me be in St. Paul's Boys, and it wouldn't have made a difference. And I ended up being in a school that I actually didn't feel like I was... You belong. I, I'm, I guess, yeah, exactly. I don't know why my, my teachers would say that as a kid. She said, well, you know, you don't belong in Hong Kong. You should go to America or something. Right, wow. When I was 12 or 13 or something. Oh, I was sad. in grade 6 or 7. I mean, it was grade 7, I think. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think my personality was just kind of like, you know, out and stuff like that. Out, not out, but I was just... Yeah, the rebel kid. Yeah. The rebel kid, yeah. Because I would, I would, like, we would print out newspapers and we would circulate underground newspapers and stuff yeah. like that. Oh, wow. And I guess the, the, the teachers weren't really happy about that. Do you still have copies of those papers? I think I, I think I do, yeah. 
and me and my best friends, like, you know, me and my best friend from Hong Kong, like, we were just always, like, doing all these things. And then he was, like, he's, like, the straight-A student, and I'm, like, the, I'm, like, the top, the worst student in school. <laughs> in my movie. class. That's the movie, so actually. All the teachers really hated me because they thought that I was corrupting, you know, my best the friend. Best students, yeah. Who was, like, you know, the straight-A student. But we kept in touch, and he became, he's now a lawyer. He's really stressed out and crazy, and I'm, like, this crazy filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the movie actually the the brother, the older brother is this uh straight A student who uh you know wins all the sports awards and also the 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 academic awards and then uh then of course something happens to him but the uh, brother is not doesn't want to study at all. He puts a a fishbowl over his head and thinks he's an astronaut. Uh, you know one of those round glass fishbowls and a fishbowl and um aquarium type things. And uh, decides he's an astronaut, and huh. so he, you know, he's observing everything. And so the film is actually kind of quite interesting, even though there's all these tearjerker kind of moments in there, which are kind of, uh, you know, typical, I suppose. Um, but uh, the, I think it's quite unique, actually. Um, partly because I'm quite interested now in Hong Kong film. I just gave a, a paper at, uh, or gave a talk at uh, in Saigon. Uh, in a conference on Southeast Asian cinemas, and um, um, I was interested in talking about Hong Kong films made about Vietnamese. Mm. Do you know when the first Vietnamese film was made in Hong Kong? Oh, it's it's Tao Wen Lo, however, it's an Anhui film. It's uh, the, this is 1933. 1933 is yeah. a Vietnamese film made in Hong Kong. No. Yeah, the first. It was the 16th film made in Hong Kong, and it was made by a, a actor from uh, Vietnam. Chinese uh, Vietnamese who set up a film company in Hong Kong to make Vietnamese films and it was only distributed in Vietnam it was in subtitle in Vietnamese and at that time you know Shaw Brothers which is a big uh, film company in the 30s uh, even they uh, were distributing 11 films a month to to uh, Vietnam and that was the largest uh, largest market after Malaya and Singapore in the 30s and 39 Wow, so all this history, I bought all these books. I was in Shanghai and Hong Kong and bought all these books on early Chinese history, Chinese film history in, in Chinese. And then in Vietnam, I picked up articles in Vietnamese on, on, this, on, on some Vietnamese films, but mostly later, I guess, from Saigon. And so I'm trying to write up a long article on this but, um, and uh, try to do more. Yeah, some of the Anhui's films. Uh, Anhui also has a film about a boy who comes from um, from Vietnam and ends up in Hong Kong. Well, because I think at one point the, the whole uh, Vietnamese um, refugees, refugee yeah. issue was really huge in Hong Kong. So I, yeah. I think that at that point they were basically forced to, I mean, like, I think that, not forced to, but I think that was a big reaction that I think the Hong Kong filmmakers started, like, you know, commenting on that, just even yeah. both on television and, and in films. And obviously, eventually, that character... That Vietnamese character, that Vietnamese refugee character, becomes a Chinese refugee from China. Yeah, you're right. It's actually so, about Chinese Vietnamese rather it, than Vietnamese Vietnamese. But event, uh, I guess, in, in eventually, that character of like the the refugees shifts from like a Vietnamese to a Chinese from China. I'm well, not sure you saw this TV series. Like, there's like Chow Yun Fat. It's one of Chow Yun Fat's really crucial role that he plays. Like, basically, this. Yeah. He represents every every man refugee from China. Well, you know, actually, the oh, uh, Vietnamese did go to China. A lot of the Vietnamese, uh, even the boy, uh, 
in the film in the, the about the boy, some of his friends from Vietnam ended up in, they were from, um, they went to North, they went through North Vietnam into China and then to Hong Kong. But then by the time they got to Hong Kong, they weren't considered refugees from Vietnam because Hong Kong only recognized uh, Vietnamese, Vietnamese that landed at, at the port of first, first Asylum and they had gone through China. So it really screwed them up. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally believe that. I think that right now, I think that the new, the new refugee or the new refugee in Hong Kong—not refugee figure, not refugee—but it's it's probably like the Filipino, the the Filipino population, you know, or the um, uh, Indonesian, maybe the, I think the Indonesian, yeah, Indonesian, yeah. yeah. But yeah, Indonesian, there's lots of people working as as maids, as domestic workers in Hong yeah, Kong. Yeah, I think that's the new. That's sort of the new, almost sure. Symbolic refugee figure. Um, yeah, yeah. Because I, I don't know. This now it's like the Chinese are so rich. It's like they're richer than Hong Kong people. <laughs> so they would come here and shop, yeah. and it's like. But, but I guess people it's interesting that... to see how the the evolution of this type of underdog character that changes throughout, yeah. even from the seventies to the eighties to to the nineties to the to you know the millennium. But they still ten years past millennium. Yeah. yeah, but there's still poor Chinese who cannot get into Hong Kong, or Hong Kong Chinese who are, you know, happen to be, you know, happen to not fit the right, uh, you know, po politics or the regulations, so they can't get Hong Kong uh, papers, so they were sent back to, you know, China. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so there's always this tension, I think, this political thing about whether you belong there or not, or whether you can get there. And so no. I think there's, there's, it's right for, you know, you're right, this, I mean, if you look at Hong Kong history, I think, there's a lot of films that could be made about the underdog, uh, the under underclass and under, you know, the people that are struggling. Uh, and so that, I mean, that was one one good thing about Anne Hui that she covered these topics yeah. uh, for TV even. And uh, The Boy from Vietnam was uh, a film for for television, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a series like Under Lion Rock series which was a, a social commentary. Oh, right, right. Well, that's, that's where Anne started. Anne really started in, like... Yeah, it's Radio TV in Hong Kong. doing all the underlying rock series. Right, right. Is it still around, that series? I don't think so. No, this... I got a series, um, some old DVDs from a shop in Monterey Park. And actually, I can get more stuff there than... When I go to Hong Kong, sometimes you can't find some of this stuff. It's funny. It's, it it's called Colonial Lag, because what happens is that... Because actually, you could find things that are, like more even because it's kind of like you know because because if you go to chinatown you might find things right. in chinatown that are much more well preserved yeah. culturally than it's already in hong kong and china because 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 in some way chinatown gets cut off from the culturally gets cut off from from the mainland and then so Chinatown actually ends up preserving you know certain cultural traditions that are like you know older school mm -hmm. versus like china has moved on it's very much like the american subjunctive where actually America has preserved the, 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 the old British subjunctive while mm -hmm. the British has already moved on with the new subjunctive. You know, basically it's something like, I insist he go to school versus I insist that he should go to school, which is a British subjunctive. New subjunctive, mm -hmm. I insist that he should go to school. Mm -hmm. But the American subjunctive, which was a traditional, the older British subjunctive, the older English subjunctive was I insist that he go to school. 
that to me was interesting, just in, in terms of like linguistically, you know, and, and culturally, how certain things and certain cultural artifacts get preserved in the colony. Um, yeah, what's going to happen with China taking over? <laughs> well, I mean, Hong Kong has always been like, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, that's why I've gotten nervous. So it's, um, yeah, the heavy hand of China. But, um, yeah, we'll see. Because, okay. like, I, even as a kid, you know, they all, my mom always scared me. Like, if you go to China, don't say anything wrong because um, you should get arrested. So that, that thing has been in my mind. Like, oh, my God, I'm so scared. Yeah. I mean, it's about, could. like, I you mean, know. They, I mean, I have friends who were kicked out of China. And so it's, it is true that, you know, but as long as you don't attack the party, I think that's probably okay. Yeah. Yeah. Already that kind of, uh, some, kind, some kind of level of dissent. Yeah. Depends on what it is, I guess. But, um, yeah. So in terms of um, this uh, DIY uh, thing, do you think that the move is now on, you said DOD, is that uh, DOD, DOD on demand? Yeah, demand? It, will, it, will be, it, will come, it will be coming on video on demand. Yeah, it will, be, it will do all that stuff, you know, but right now it hasn't happened yet, So, but it will. So how about Netflix? Uh, I, I noticed that some of your films were on Netflix, well, all my films, I think, were on Netflix. Other yeah. than left with because we haven't. We're just finishing up the distribution deal right now. So. And you have to. Do they have to borrow? I mean, what do you call it? Rent it, or can they just stream it? No. I don't know. I think. I think my older movies can be streamed. I don't know what kind of deal I have. Oh, um, I have yeah. to really go and look back. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, I'm one, not I think, on Netflix, yeah. but I just looked when I, I I googled your name in Netflix, and oh, I went into Netflix and put in your name. But streaming is definitely like streaming is the next generation, and I think that it's really. I'm I'm glad that Hollywood and and just the general entertainment industries is taking charge. Like you know, you know, just really trying to figure out like how to make money from streaming because yeah. because I think that the, the music industry sort of like the music industry basically went down because they weren't able to figure out the technology, the the, the revenue model in time. time Technology before they they can make money, so so it becomes all the download stuff like that. But so, so but I think that with with filmmakers and with Hollywood, I think that we're getting like a good handle on the streaming and and, and you know as long as the like quality, we learned the lesson from the music industry. Yeah. As long as the quality is good, I think it'll be it'll be fun to watch. And I think that you know you know that sometimes you know some people prefer to watch you know a really bad you know low resolution download copy of your movie but you know some people that are like cinephiles prefer to watch a blu-ray or buy sure. a dvd that has different still kinds be of people that want the real thing yeah yeah it's okay. just about how to capitalize on different levels yeah i guess our time is up quentin uh, so, all right we're so, running out of thank time. you very much <laughs> yeah. thank you very much come okay. see the movie this okay. friday yeah i will try five. okay thanks a lot okay, bye thank you bye uh that was quentin lee uh filmmaker of, uh originally from hong kong who's made this film called uh, Peep the People I've Slept With, uh, about a woman who is promiscuous, so-called, and ends up getting somebody pregnant. So she has to find out who the father is. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.